or Moses' keeping. Hebrews 11.28 By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Because it's been about a month since we were last in Hebrews, let me very quickly review for you this. This is the third sermon from this chapter on the saving faith of Moses. First, we saw that Moses, by faith, identified himself with the people of God. He turned from the riches and pleasures of sin and chose the riches of the reproach of Christ instead. That's because he was looking not with physical eyes to make his decision. He was looking to the reward by faith. Secondly, Moses by faith left Egypt showing that saving faith is always accompanied by the grace of courage. Today we will see that Moses' saving faith is exemplified in his keeping the Passover. Once again, we will see that true faith receives content from God, rests in that content from God, that is, it believes in the revelation of God, the word of God, and will be reminded that saving faith always leads to obedience in that content, in that word from God. So let's look now at Moses' response of keeping the Passover by faith. First, the story. The story. The background to verse 28 is found in Exodus 11 and 12. This is, of course, the account of the 10th plague that God sent upon Egypt when he was freeing his people Israel from their slavery. Nine plagues came from God through Moses upon Pharaoh and Egypt. None had led to Israel's freedom. In fact, these plagues had actually only worked to make the bondage greater, to make it worse. But God came to Moses and said, this is the last plague. Why? Because through it, actually even on the very day that it happens, you will go free. My people will be free. Now, humanly speaking, this might have been very hard for Moses to believe. I mean, why will this one be any different, he could have thought. I mean, Pharaoh's heart is harder now than when we started this. Why is this one going to make a difference? And after God tells him everything, he thinks, how can an animal's blood stop this plague of death? But Moses didn't respond in any of those ways. He didn't respond by sight. He responded by faith. He believed God. He listened carefully to all that God had to say, and then he transmitted these detailed and precious directives to the people of God. Here's what God said he would do. He would put to death every firstborn in Egypt. But there was a way of escape for those who believed and acted on God's instructions. 
Moses was told that each Israelite household must sacrifice what? An unblemished, one-year-old male lamb. It could be a goat or a sheep, but a lamb. And put the blood on their door, post, and sides. On the top, on the sides. On the lintel, on the jams, we might say. So the way of entrance into the house was marked with blood. <laughs> then God said, I will come through the land as the destroyer. He's very clear about this. He does not delegate this death to other men. There are many times in the Bible when God says, I will punish you by the Assyrians or by this people or that person. Or God's very personal here in, in chapter 11. He says, I will come and do this. I will bring death. He even calls himself in Exodus 12, 23, and in our verse 28, the destroyer. That's why in some of your Bibles, that's actually capitalized. It refers to God himself. He is the one who will bring judgment and death. But at every house where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled, God says, I myself will stand at the door and guard against the destroyer, and I will keep the inhabitants safe. The destroying Lord would pass over the door, and so this meal was called the Passover meal. The meal that commemorates freedom and salvation. You see, in this, the Lord was both judge and savior. At the same time, he was doing both works. He was simultaneously just toward some and merciful toward others. He brought in the same action salvation, and death. In the house, the inhabitants were to eat the lamb in a very specific manner. God gave them detailed instructions about not only what to eat with it, even how to dress while they were eating it. And so after this, their slavery would end, he said. And then the feast would be held annually as a memorial to this salvation, to this release from bondage. At this point, of course, that hadn't happened. They're commanded to keep this feast before salvation has come. Well, Moses believed God's word. And he precisely passed on to the elders God's instructions, and they taught the people. And they must have done this fairly quickly. But they all listened to Moses. And they kept the Passover. They killed the lamb. And they sprinkled the blood. So that the houses of blood became houses of safety. Every Egyptian house became a house of mourning. Every blood-stained house became a house of joy. There was blood in every home that, that day. Blood on the inside or blood on the outside. But there was always blood. And as it turned out, this was Israel's last night in Egypt. 
That's the story. That's the background to verse 28. Now, what's the act of faith that Moses did? Well, it says simply, he celebrated the Passover. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. What this means is that Moses celebrated the Passover before there was deliverance. We usually think of the Passover celebration, you know, later in Israel's history, and it's a memorial meal. But the first Passover preceded deliverance. So this required faith. Moses kept this in faith. Now, this makes sense because remember in chapter 11, verse 1, this is what faith is in its essence. It's the assurance, or we said probably a better translation is literally the, the celebration of things still in the future as if they were already here. God's command came to Moses and he accepted it. He believed it. He believed what God said would come to pass and he carefully followed the Passover instructions. And so his, his act of faith was keeping the Passover and sprinkling the blood of the sacrificial lamb. This is another reminder that faith doesn't merely profess to believe God. Oh, profess. Oh, yes, yes, I think that's true. It doesn't stop there. It practices what God says. It lives by the word of God. Yes. And his acts also reminds us that paying attention to the details of God's instruction is not legalism. <laughs> it's living, saving faith. <laughs> Moses, you're being awfully persnickety. Yes, <laughs> because I believe God, not just in a big way, in every way. Wanting to follow God's word precisely does not display a legal spirit. It displays the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, what was the result of this action that Moses took and that Israel following him took. Well, of course, the immediate result was to protect Israel's firstborn from death. Unless Israel sprinkled the blood of the substitute lamb, all of their firstborn would die also. But God's word came to them through Moses, and he oversaw its keeping, and this resulted in the physical salvation of Israel's firstborn. The destroyer did not touch them. Deliverance from death followed the obedience of faith. But there's more here than just avoiding grief. Think about all the results of this in the big picture. I mean, this is how Israel was preserved as the people of God. This is how they were freed from slavery. This is how they're enabled to go worship God as he deserved. This is how they head to the promised land. And ultimately, the Messiah was born to this people because they were still a people and God preserved them. The fulfillment to the Passover lamb is born to this people because God preserves them here. 
Well, that brings us to the fulfillment, the fourth point. The Passover and the Exodus. We sometimes think of those as two events, but, but they're really one <clears throat> salvation event for Israel. In the Old Testament, this is the great picture of salvation. There are many pictures of salvation found in the Old Covenant scriptures, but this is the greatest one. So knowing our Bibles as we do, that Christ is in all of the Old Testament and typified and pictured and prophesied there, we aren't surprised that this deliverance pictures Jesus Christ. I mean, how could it be otherwise? How could the greatest picture of salvation, of freedom, of liberation in the Old Testament not point to Christ? That doesn't make any sense at all. The freedom Israel experienced was real, but it was a physical deliverance from a physical bondage by a physical people didn't mean that they all were saved. In fact, it's very clear from the Old Testament accounts as it goes on that the vast majority of these people did not love or believe God. This freedom was the release from bodily enslavement. It was a foreshadowing only of ultimate salvation. The blood on, of the lamb on the doorpost didn't actually remove anyone's sin. How can the blood of bulls and goats take away a human being's sin, Hebrews asks. Well, of course it can't. But it was God's appointed way for Israel to stay physically alive. So the freedom with which Christ, our Passover lamb, sets us free is what? It's greater. <laughs> it's greater. It's not less than this. It is a release from the penalty and power of sin. It is escaping the bondage of eternal death. The blood of Jesus keeps us from being justly plagued by the righteous destroyer. Do you see the parallel? God is still both judge and savior. He still brings death and life. God put Jesus Christ to death in justice as the Lamb of God. And God in Christ, at the same time, brought salvation. He is both the destroyer and the guardian of souls. And the Passover pictures all of this in Christ. Yes, it's a true real-life event. It happened in whatever year it was, about 12 or 14 or 1500 B.C. But it all pointed to a greater reality in Jesus Christ. Let me give you five ways that the New Testament shows Jesus to be the goal of the Passover. And there are more than this, 
These are just the obvious ones, all right? Here they are, five, real quick. First of, of all, of course, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God, John 1.29. Every sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament pointed to one person, Jesus. Some pointed in this way, some pointed in that way, some because of this peculiarity of the way the sacrifice was to be done or what it was for, or what. but they all pointed to Jesus Christ. He's the lamb of the sacrifices. He's the lamb of the Passover. He's the, he's the scapegoat. He, he's all of those things. He's the goal. Secondly, Christ ransomed us by his blood like a lamb without spot or blemish. 1 Peter 1.19 This lamb had to be perfect. Jesus Christ was perfect. Physically, morally, Christ was perfect. Thirdly, he was slain as our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5.7 Where we are just overtly told he is the fulfillment of this picture in the Old Testament. You see, when Moses was placing his faith in the word of God, he was placing his faith in the ultimate lamb, in the Christ. He knew about the reproaches of Christ. We know that from verse 26. Well, he knew about the rewards of Christ too. Fourthly, none of Jesus' bones were broken. Why is that important? Because he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, the instructions are very clear. They were not to break any of their bones. And so in John 19 and verse 36, it says, none of Jesus' bones were broken on the cross. Why? So that it would be a fulfillment of this. This is not the ravings of some really bad hermeneutical preacher who um, just likes to make up interesting correlations. The word of God says the lamb didn't, wasn't supposed to have its bones broken because Christ wasn't supposed to. He had to shed his blood. He had to be a sacrifice. Yes, he got a spear in the side, but none of his bones were broken. It had to be that way. And then fifth and finally, and like I said, there really are more than this, but... Fifth and finally, he too is to be eaten as a memorial meal in the house of God. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. You see, everything in the New Testament is found in picture form in the Old Testament. And we need the New Testament to tell us exactly how and why and to give us more light, but it's all there. It's all there. So Jesus Christ is the antitype. He's the fulfillment of the type. He's the goal. He's the point. He's the body. He's the reality of all of these things, including the Passover lamb. Well, three uses. The first is this. This is, I trust, very obvious by now. Christ must be your Passover lamb if you are to be saved. Christ must be 
your Passover lamb if you are to be saved. You know, we might say that all of us are born Egyptians. Symbolically, we're all born Egyptians. That is, we have sinful natures. We make up false gods. We give them false worship. And we live lives that are not pleasing to God. They're in defiance of God. And the wages, the justice of all of that is death. That's the story. That's the truth for all of us. That's the bad news of the gospel. And there has to be bad news so there can be good news. And God is unchanged. So he is still today judge and savior. He is still today destroyer and protector. So if his sentence of death hangs over you justly for your sins, how will you escape? How will you be not the Egyptian firstborn, but how will you be the Israelite firstborn? Again, speaking symbolically here, how will you be that person? Is there a modern equivalent to the lamb's blood on the doorposts for your life. Well, the New Testament tells us that there is a remedy for everyone under sin's death sentence. And this remedy is Christ, who, remember, is the Passover lamb. Let's be straightforward here. Your and my death is coming. Some of our deaths will undoubtedly be be very soon. Others might be much later, but they're all certain. It's not escapable. And after this, the Bible says, very plainly, comes the judgment, your judgment, my judgment. One of the scriptural pictures of the judgment is that God sends his angels out. And what do they do? They reap men. They cut them down. Like God, the destroyer who moved through Egypt and hundreds of thousands perhaps died. That's what will happen on the last day. All men will be cut down like wheat. They'll all be reaped and taken into the barn of eternity. Some will be cut down so that they can display the justice of God. That is, because of their unforgiven sins, because of their rebellion, they will be destroyed for their sins. And so the question is, in that day, will God be your destroyer or will he be your protector? Will he send you to eternal death or will he guard you? for eternal life. Those are the only two options. And wishful thinking about extinction or reincarnation or anything else won't help you a bit. You will know the truth in that day. Those will be the options, and it will be too late. God gives you life now to either be under the blood of the Passover lamb or to reject it and face the consequences later. So the question you must ask is this. What must happen for God to pass over you? 
so that you will be safe? The answer is this. You must be sprinkled with the blood of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Blood in the Bible stands for life. It signifies life. And when it's shed, death follows, right? Well, what Jesus Christ came to do, what the God-man came to do was live and die, to shed his blood, not for himself, but in the place of sinners, so that everyone who trusts in him, everyone who believes in him is considered covered by his blood and is safe. Because Jesus died for them, they don't have to die anymore. When they stand before God, the judgment will be, oh, protect this one. Not, no, don't protect this one. That is how to find safety from the destroyer. If you do this, eternal death will pass over you and eternal life will be yours. So protection and salvation, they come through the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of you who are spiritual Egyptians, <laughs> imitate Moses. Take the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, take it to yourself and sprinkle it on yourselves, on your consciences, and you will be saved from your sins. You will have right standing with God. You will have peace with God. We might even say that by faith you'll be keeping the New Testament Passover by believing in Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 13, verse 1, the prophecy says this. On that day, that is in the day of Jesus Christ, a fountain will be opened to cleanse from sin and impurity. This is, of course, the basis for that famous him, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Would you be safe from God? That, that's your great need. <laughs> if you are in, still in your sins, your great need is you need protection from God. Well, then run to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, yes, you need protection from God, but there is salvation in that same God. All you must do is agree with him. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I confess. I say the same thing after you, O God. I rightly deserve death for these sins. And, and so in Jesus Christ is my only hope. If that's something you need instruction about from the Bible... Please see one of, the, one of the brothers and sisters here. Please see me. This is the one thing needful in life. To know that you are right with God, that you are under the blood, that you are safe, and that you're not going to be destroyed by the destroyer. Well, I have two other uses, much shorter. The first, and that is the reminder that we ought to follow Christ's commands closely. And I would say on the basis of these texts, especially the sacraments, especially the Lord's Supper, for them to do you any good, 
they must not only be done God's way, but they must be done in faith. Let's imitate Moses here. By faith, he kept the Passover. What this means is when I am gone, don't let another pastor come and change the simplicity and precision of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I don't mean, you know, make the next poor man be under all of your thumbs so that every little circumstantial detail that Pastor Ron did, you know, he has to do too. I don't mean that. But if he begins to take you away from the plain instruction of the order of the details of these ordinances, of these sacraments, say, brother, no. (laughs) No, on the basis of the word of God, we ought not to do it that way. If the Old Testament saints followed it closely, how much more us? (laughs) New covenant, spiritual saints, how much more us? It's also a reminder to, to prepare yourself to come to the table week by week with faith so that you can actually profit from Christ's body and blood. Well, thirdly and finally, be sure to think about and observe the Lord's Supper through the lens of Christ and not through the lens of the Old Covenant Passover. Be sure to think And observe the Lord's Supper through the lens of Christ and not the lens of the Old Covenant Passover. Why? Because the rules for keeping the Passover, they don't apply any longer. The Passover is fulfilled directly, not in the Lord's Supper, but in Jesus Christ. He is our Passover. This is not our Passover. He is our Passover. And so the Passover is fulfilled indirectly in the Lord's Supper, but it's through the way of Christ. So is the Lord's Supper related to the Passover? Some in church history have said no. The parallels are so many that that answer is really not reasonable. But are they both exactly the same thing? Well, some have said yes to that, and that can't be right either. Because the fulfillment is Christ. The reality is Christ. The body is Christ. body is not the Old Covenant Passover. So we don't go to the Old Testament to learn how to dress to eat this supper. I hope you've got your sandals on just exactly the right way and you are ready to really run out of here as soon as it's over because that's what they were called to do. No, that doesn't apply to us anymore. It was a circumstance that we don't have to follow. They did. They absolutely did. But we don't. We don't include our unbelieving children at this meal. They did. We don't eat bitter herbs with it. The list could go on. The lamb isn't a physical animal any longer. This is not the literal body and blood of Christ here, right? 
but it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense, as he repeatedly tells us in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians. This blood doesn't keep us physically safe. It does keep us spiritually safe and strong. The leaven, Paul tells us, isn't yeast. It's sin in our lives. 1 Corinthians 5. We eat, we eat this meal not with our biological families. Now, you, you may be sitting with your biological family. I think that's good. But you don't take this meal as a biological family. You take this as the household of God. You take this as the people of God. If that happens to include all that's in your biological family here, praise the Lord for his grace. If it doesn't, this marks out where your ultimate allegiance is. It's with the family of God, not with your human family. Now, praise his name. He so often makes those to be the same thing or close to being the same thing included, and we thank him when he does that. We also eat, though, like the Old Testament believers did, like Moses did, we eat in the confidence that the destroyer will not spiritually harm us. Brothers and sisters, when you come to this table, if you are rightly here at all, and you come in faith, you need to feel the assurance that this means God is not your enemy, your destroyer, or your judge. He is your father, and you are safe. That's why this table should lead to peace in your lives. It should lead to comfort. Not if you don't know Jesus, you shouldn't be partaking of the table. Because for those who partake, it means peace. It means you have peace with God. It means he's your guardian, not your destroyer. And so when we take, and we will here in just a moment, we feast in the assurance that eternal life is ours in Jesus Christ our Passover lamb. Let's pray.